Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fishing and eating fish. Show it's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, and your best friend. I'm super happy to be here. Big show today. It's been a few weeks since I put a show out. I've been so crazy busy in my world, my real life world, the world that makes actual money for me, that I haven't been able to make a podcast. But I'm back today. I'm happy to be here, and I got a big show. So here's what's going to happen on today's show. We got John King, the crappie hippie with us. He's going to do some cooking for us. He's got citrus baked fish. Remember, the show is about fish, fishing, and eating fish. We're finally eating fish again. Happy to do that. We got the news for you. Lots of fish in the news. And and we've got Doc Martin with us, our chief science correspondent, talking about 3D coral. So a lot going on tonight's show. We're going to jump right in with John King and some citrus baked fish. Fish, mmm, delicious. Hey, everybody, it's Crappie Hippie here, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, and I got a fish cooking recipe for you here today. Uh, now, I know everybody likes to fry fish. I like to fry fish. There's a million ways to fry fish right there. That's the best method, I think, but there's plenty of other great ways to cook fish. And we don't always have to endure the mess and the heat and the uh, whole uh, carrying on that goes with frying fish. So if you're pressed for time, I got a nice little recipe that involves baking fish. And baking fish is great. Sorry, Luke Chalmings, but I like baked fish. Baked fish is delicious if it's done right. It's not dry. It's awesome because it doesn't take up the stovetop. So you're not uh, taking up all the room with a big fry fish pan and you can't cook any sides like some nice sauteed zucchini or some asparagus like doc martin loves or any of the other fine things that go along with fish uh you don't have to watch it as close as you do fried fish and therefore you got some time to concentrate on other things so here we go okay let's uh get the oven going first of all uh i like the oven to be right at 400 on average now if i'm doing some something really small like bluegill fillets i'll go ahead and lighten it up maybe 375 right in there also if i'm doing something really big like a big catfish steak or a nice thick salmon fillet or something like that uh i'm going to go 375 ish and i'm also probably going to anoint that with a little olive oil uh, what i'm trying to do here is have the oven in a place where the outside doesn't get too done while we're waiting for that heat to penetrate the middle you know right around that 400 range is where we want on average uh, because we're all eating those one to two pound fish right we want those younger fish we want the fish that haven't developed a lot of toxins in their flesh we want the ones that uh, are the best tasting uh your eaters and those tend to be in your one to two pound range so 400 oven or thereabouts uh, we're going to get that warming up then we're going to grab a cookie sheet now the cookie sheet cannot be a flat cookie sheet we need one that has edges and we're going to take and line that cookie sheet with some heavy foil now if you don't have heavy foil that's okay just take your standard foil and double it well crappie hippie i ain't got no foil tall well, that's okay, too. Now, you're going to set yourself up for a little more cleanup, but you can still do this. It's all right. Don't panic and don't go to the store. All right? It's fine. All you want to do is put a little bit. We're going to put a little oil on this anyway. All right? So you take your bare cookie sheet and you oil it a little better. 
the fish is going to sit up on these citrus slices that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. And it's still going to be pretty darn easy to get this done and have an easy cleanup. But foil ensures that you have a no fuss, no muss time when it comes to uh, cleaning up after the fish. And even if I do lay down the foil, I put a thin coating of canola oil or whatever oil you have just what I call insurance oil on there. I just want a little oil to make sure any little piece that's hanging over or whatever doesn't stick. It's no problem, all right? Okay, so we've got the oven warming up, step one. Step two, we've created a cooking tray uh, for the fish. Step three, we're going to be looking at our citrus. Now, how much citrus do I cut up? I don't know. How many you know fish fillets do you have? What you're going to want is enough rings, enough citrus slices to you know one, two, three, four usually for an average fillet off a of one pound fish. One pound fish gives you about eight ounces of fillets, about approximately two four ounce fillets. Um, a two pound fish I think might double that. Um, I don't know. We're going to have to check with Doc or Rhett Talbot or Amy or somebody that's smarter than me. But anyway. Something like that, all right? And it, it, don't panic. Oh, no, I, I, I need six lemons, and I only have four and a half because somebody used some of it to put in their iced tea. It's okay. Don't get uptight. You know what really freaks me out? And, you know, the cooking channel and all this is this performative pressure these people put on uh, everybody to uh, do these things. You know, restaurant perfect. It's ridiculous. You know, I've been a chef for 20 years before I went into the fishing lure business. There's no such thing as restaurant perfect. Believe me. All right. And there is no running out to the store allowed because this kind of silly, non-necessary driving is, you know, what drives those wreck statistics way up don't do it just make do with what you have please we can't be doing this stuff we can't take the fun out of cooking by putting this sort of pressure on ourselves to be like some person on tv i mean um more people watch cooking than actually cook these days that's not how it's supposed to be all righty i'm sorry rant concluded but make the amount of citrus you have work if you have to put a half inch between if you only have three slices instead of five under that fish fillet it's going to be fine all right we're talking about the essence of citrus here we're not making limeade popsicles, okay? It's the essence of the filet. I mean, of the, of the citrus with the filet, okay? You're going to be fine. It's going to be fine, okay? All righty, so we cut our, our, our citrus up, and we have quarter-inch to half-inch slices. Now, once again, if you've got to stretch that citrus and you've got to get down to a one-eighth-inch slice to make it work— it's fine. It may, you know, you might, you know, it might stick a little bit, but you put some insurance oil down to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, it might not have quite as much flavor, but it's still going to be delicious. The thing is, we don't need them any any thicker than a half inch. So you got a top end range. Uh, if you have to fudge on the bottom end of the range to make it work, make it work. Don't send somebody out to the store, please. All righty. So we get our citrus rings down. We got our fillets laying on the citrus rings. We shove it in the oven. Now. Uh, like on a, you know, eight ounce, four ounce filet, it's going to take four to six minutes. Uh, I would start, I, you know, start checking earlier than later because once it's too late, it's too late. Right. Um, but don't rush it. You know, it's called flaking flaking and uh it's like when you feel like you're falling apart you know that's why we call that going flaky uh seriously you pull on that fillet you, you you touch it you tug on it with that fork and if it divides easily that's called flaking it's done all righty that's when it's done it's going to take longer if it's a big piece of fish it's going to take less time if it's a small piece of fish i i don't know how or why that works uh doc martin is the physicist she can explain it to us someday um but <laughs> okay so the fish is done out it comes out 
<laughs> out of the oven it comes, okay? And then it's still nice and hot. That's when you take a fine sea salt. But all I have is regular salt. Regular salt is fine. I like sea salt. I have about four different kinds of salt. Uh, when I go to the Asian store, I, I'll buy salt. When I go to this store, I'll buy salt because I, I like all different kinds of salt. But uh, fine salt, a fine salt is what you want. You want it's going to melt. And uh, you put the salt on then. You put your paprika if that's what you like. Or you put your black pepper if that's what you like. Or you put your white pepper if that's what you like. You put your seasonings on right then while the fish is still nice and hot. Let it set a minute. In the meantime... Um, oh, and before I leave about the citrus and the cooking, if you're doing a blue catfish or a white bass or something with some stronger flavor and you have the citrus, go ahead and put some citrus slices on top of that. Then when it comes out of the oven, of course, get the citrus out of the way, hit it with the salt. Okay. So now we, we've got it seasoned. We've got it resting. We're going to quick. We've, since we've had the stove top to ourselves and we've had a good six minutes to get things together there, we got our corn on the cob done, or uh, we made some asparagus because Doc Martin's coming over, or uh, we did some uh, favorite vegetable of some sort on there. Uh, green beans are delicious too. Uh, cauliflower, you can't be beat. Uh, anyhow, you've made a nice, neat, easy to clean up vegetable. Okay, that's your strategy. Uh, maybe you've gone to trouble and boiled some potatoes. Delicious, okay? Uh, get that butter bread. You already got that homemade bread all sliced in that butter on there uh, getting soft and uh, you get all that onto the plate and the great thing about it is when the meal is done and everybody's saying man that was really good uh, you're already a hero let's keep the heroics going hey honey I'll go ahead and clean up tonight and you go right in there and all you got to do is take care of uh, whatever you cooked your vegetable in uh, you, you were smart enough to put some water in your potato pan so the starch there is all softened and, and that's easy to get out and if you're one of these people that has a dishwasher you got it made in the shade now all you got to do is rinse a few plates this isn't the kind of sticky saucy food that has all kinds of gunk on the plates plates rinse off real easy um, uh, you can just shed anything that can go in the compost or in the trash can go right onto that tray with those uh, citrus slices and the fish residue and uh, you, you, you got everything done you've cleaned it all up you run outside you dump all the organics off the the fish tray into your compost if you don't have a compost that's okay although shame on you you might consider starting one uh, but the main thing is you gather up all that foil and it's right into the trash can and that tray will look like you didn't even use it now if you had to go with no foil everything's still going to just slide right off that tray and you're going to be able to wash it really really easily okay so that's my recipe for fish and citrus I hope you enjoy it as much as Kathy and I enjoy having it. Uh, there's so many times when I just can't face a fish fry with the cleanup and taking care of the oil and disposing of the mess. And uh, we've just got to get together and, and, and have a nice meal. But uh, we just don't want to go through the whole rigmarole behind fried fish. This is our go-to recipe. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this recipe early and often. This is Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck, saying tight lines and valentines and best wishes for fish eating delicious peace out settle down settle down it's just john king the crappie hippie with a very manic fish recipe john that was the most manic uh, recipe i've ever heard i please cook more for us i love that i love citrus on fish great combo well done, Mr. King. Sounds very, very good. So let's jump in with some fish in the news here. Let me get my my notes up. A good editor would uh, solve this problem very, very quickly. <clears throat> so it's time for fish in the news. Let me try this button out, see how this works. Oh, wrong button. Wrong button. 
Oh, wrong button. Nope, wrong button. Nope, wrong button. Nope, oh, wrong button. There it is. It's going to take me a while to learn all the new buttons on my mixing board. But good evening. It's time for Fish in the News. And here is our first news story. Headline is, Feds bust alleged multi-million dollar international shark fin smuggling ring. 12 people, two companies face conspiracy charges. Now, longtime listeners know how I feel about shark smuggling. Not shark smuggling. Shark finning. It's very bad. But let me read the story to you. A dozen people and two alleged front businesses have been named as criminal defendants in what federal authorities describe as an international conspiracy to illegally traffic shark fins and launder the millions of dollars it generates. The defendants are also charged in an alleged conspiracy to ship hundreds of pounds of marijuana from California to Georgia. I see two unrelated stories here. The indictment against them alleges they formed a front business in California and Florida and smuggled shark fins from Mexico to Hong Kong. The indictment names we're not going to bother with. Uh, But anyway, so here's what they say. Here's the whole scheme. The scheme began in 2013. The shark fin trade, while controversial, still legal in many parts of the world. It's true. It's sad, but that's a true thing. An estimated 70 million shark fins are sharks are killed every year for their fins, which make the soup that's considered a delicacy food item that are used in traditional Chinese medicine. And whenever you hear traditional medicine for something illegal, it's almost always about making penises work better. It doesn't work. A common way to harvest shark fins knowing at, known as finning is simply to hack the fins off and dump living sharks back in the water to eventually suffocate and die. It's really terrible. This is done because shark meat, unlike the fin, doesn't fetch the good price per pound as other sea creatures and has led to international condemnation of bans of shark fin trade, including California. Florida, however however, has loser laws, that's a real thing, concerning shark fin trading, which is what alleged co-conspirators took advantage of. According to the indictment, they formed Phoenix Fisheries in Florida to mask shark fin trading that was really going on in California in violation of state law. To mask the state law violation, the indictment alleges Phoenix Fisheries would falsify documents and in doing so violated federal wildlife tracking laws. The indictment lists two three-ton shipments, that's a lot of fins, that went from Georgia to Hong Kong. Members of the group were also allegedly shipping 25 to 50-pound packages of marijuana from California to Georgia. I have no problem with the marijuana. The sharks I got a problem with. The laundering those proceeds as well, the indictment says. Prosecutors list names where couriers were paid shipping fees to take bundles of $1 million and $2 million in cash at a time, as well as several other instances where smaller amounts were allegedly laundered. That's so much money. This is crazy. Members of the conspiracy and others would were wire illegal drug proceeds to a third-party business to account for high illegal profits. The indictment alleges, later adding that the money was also allegedly, allegedly alleged a lot in the story, being deposited into third-party accounts. This is terrible. First of all, shark finning is bad. Uh, I got in trouble with one of our Patreon listen, listeners a few months back. We lost a listener because I said, I don't care about your culture. Uh, shark finning is bad, and culture is a terrible reason to keep doing things. I don't back down on that. Stop it. Um, I got no problem with the drug trade. I just stop, legalize it, and get it off the streets. But the whole thing is crazy, and even crazier that people eat shark fin soup not because it tastes good, but because they need their wieners to work better. That's the truth. So stop it. Next news story. <laughs> 
And this is from CBS Boston. New Hampshire man catches a 15-pound catfish that likely set a new state record. I'm going to take the word likely out. It did indeed. This is the news here. A New Hampshire man reeled in a catfish over the weekend that is believed to be a record-setting weight for the Granite State. Matthew Smith and Marlowe caught a channel catfish on the Connecticut River. New Hampshire Fishing Game said conservation officers witnessed the fish and it weighed in at 15.33 pounds. Pending approval from Fishing Game biologists, it will set a new state record. The previous record was 12 pounds and 4.8 ounces. That previous record was owned by our very own Fish Nerds correspondent, Dave Kellum. So Dave Kellum, you're off, you're thrown. There is a new champion in town with the channel catfish. By the way, in the photos, it looks much smaller. I was with Dave when he caught his state record fish and uh, there are more out there easy to catch no big deal in fact I, the, the whole idea of catching a record fish to me is is fun but you can't control what size fish bites your hook so it's really a game of luck and it's the unfortunate thing about record state fishing is you have to kill the fish to get certified so that's kind of a bummer about that so that's that fish news and now we got one more news piece and this one i'm gonna read because i'm actually going to reach out to these ladies and see if i can get them on the show this is from blackenterprise.com, and this is Meet the All-Black Female Fishing Team from North Carolina who are making history. The Ebony Anglers, an all-black female fishing team from Moorhead, North Carolina, have recently made history after winning the King Mackerel Division of the Spanish Mackerel and Dolphin Tournament. This is the first major tournament that they've ever competed. So first time they competed, and they win. Gia Peebles a salon owner and entrepreneur first thought of the idea of forming the group after she and her husband watched the annual Big Rock Fishing Tournament in June. This is a quote. When I saw women of all ages coming from their fishing boats with fish winning prizes, I noticed there were no women of color competing, people told Spectacular Magazine. I said to myself, we can do this. I already know, I already know an accomplished woman who are leaders and know how to win in other aspects of their lives. We can do this. She then reached out to the women who were also entrepreneurs, including festival owners and educator Leslie Mousey, nail tech entrepreneur Glenda Turnier, and digital marketing specialist and editorial model Bobette Palmer and gourmet catering company owner Tiana Davis. What a good group. Holy smokes. As a competitive women fishing team, they reeled in a 48-pound king mackerel in their first competition, earning them the coveted citation for the North Carolina Wilder Life Resources Commission. Congratulations. I am going to reach out to them, see if I can get them on a future episode of The Fish Nerds, find out more about them. And uh, what I find most interesting is not not that they're women of color or even women necessarily, but their careers that bring them into it, you know, nail technicians and salon owners, like really like pretty jobs in a, such a dirty, stinky world. I think that's more interesting the contrast than anything. So I can't wait. Hopefully they'll want to talk to little old me on the Fish Nerds podcast. We'll see. And that is Fish in the News. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. That was fun. Okay, that was Fish in the News. Now we're going to get some serious fish talking in. This is really good stuff. We are so lucky because Doc Martin is with us. I mean, without Doc Martin, I don't know what we would do. The science on the show would not be as same, the same as it is now. So Doc Martin, when she finds a fish news story that has some good science in it, she goes right to the source. And this one, Doc Martin found Emily Rule, who is a scientist who did some work with corals. And she 3D printed some corals 
to uh, see how angel fish and other fish reacted to them to see if she can restore reefs by using a 3D printer. So I'm going to read you the abstract, and then I'm going to let Doc Martin tell this story, okay? Okay, glad we had this talk. Here we go. 3D printing technology offers significant advantages in the development of objects and tools across an array of fields and has been implemented in an increasing number of ecological studies. As rates of degradation and chemical leaching of 3D printed models has not been well documented under environmental conditions, it is essential to examine these objects, how these objects will alter the behavior or impact the survivorship of the focal species prior to a widespread implementation. Here we explore the efficacy of using 3D printed models in coral reef behavioral research, an area of study where this form of additive manufacturing could offer significant advantages. Coral associated blue-green chromis, chromis viridis, thank you. Uh, indiv- Actually, yes, thank you. Thanks. I said it. Yeah, I know. Calm down. Calm down. Individuals exposed to, to natural and 3D printed coral habitats and larval mustard hill corals, Poridus asteroidus. No, no cheers? No? Okay. I can do this. <clears throat> it's going to be okay. Uh, they were offered 3D printed substrate as settlement surfaces. Habitat association and behavioral analysis indicate that these did not discriminate or display modified behaviors between 3D printed and natural coral skeletons or between 3D printed materials. A P. asteroidus did display significant higher settlement when provided with 3D printed settlement surfaces and when provided no settlement surface and settled at similar rates between 3D printed surfaces and differing materials. Additionally, growth and mortality of P. asteroidus settled on different 3D printed surfaces did not significantly differ. Our results suggest that 3D printed models used in this study are not inherently harmful to coral reef fish or species of brooding coral, supporting further, further explanation of the benefits that these objects and other produced with additive manufacturing may offer ecological research tools. So this is really good news for coral reefs. Can we use 3D printing to bring back the reefs we're going to find out now because we've got Doc Martin here to teach us all about it with Emily Rule, the, the actual scientist involved in this study. So without further ado, here we go. By the way, there are links up in the show notes if you want to read the study yourself. My name is Emily Roll. I am originally from Reading, Pennsylvania area. Um, I just finished up a master's in marine sciences at the University of Delaware College of Earth, Ocean and Environment campus in Lewis. I was able to secure a position working as a research biologist at the Engineering Research and Development Center in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And so um, that's URDIC for short. And so URDIC is actually within the Army Corps of Engineers in their um, R&D department. So there are several Urdic labs throughout the country, but um, four of them are actually based here in, in Vicksburg, right next to the Mississippi River. So oh, that is cool. currently where I am. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, 
the study we're going to talk about, uh, the reason that I sent you the email, I actually found it on uh, Science Daily. So they did a write-up first, um, and theirs was called 3D Printed Coral Could Help Endangered Reefs. Um, but the original mm-hmm. paper that that was based on was published in uh, PLOS One. And so that one was um, had a little bit fancier title. So 3D Printed Objects Do Not Impact the Behavior of a Coral-Associated Damselfish mm-hmm or survival of a settling stony coral. So mm-hmm. in general, I'll try to summarize this. Basically, you looked at different types of real coral and then fake coral to see if that would affect how damselfish behaved with it. Um, and then I think maybe surprisingly, you found that some of those corals were better at helping other corals maybe make a little home. Is that pretty good? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, So there were, you know, the background of this is kind of um, had two kind of like main, well, I guess three, like main um, facets to it. So we first wanted to just know if using the the fake coral, right, that you're talking about is the the 3D printed coral Mm -hmm. that we, artificial objects that we created. And so um, the very first question that we wanted to answer was, you know, can you even use 3D printed objects to assess questions of, you know, habitat preference and, and things like that in coral reef um, organisms, so fish and coral in our case. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't think that that had been, you know, investigated in depth um, when we started the work. And so we wanted to just know, you know, do these objects, would they produce some sort of, um, you know, elicit negative responses or behaviors, you know, and, and because the maybe the fish or the coral could tell that they were not natural and wouldn't actually want to use use those objects as habitat. So that was the first thing that we did. And so and to, then once we go ahead. Oh to, okay, go ahead. to make the fake corals. So you took some mm-hmm. pictures with just an iPhone kind of all around it and that was fed through I assume some program and that's how you actually printed those corals. Is that right? Yes. So at our, on our campus, we have uh, this robotics discovery lab. So when we were just starting out, me and uh, Dr. Danielle Dixon, uh, we didn't have any of our own 3D printing capabilities or equipment. So luckily, we have this amazing robotics discovery lab on campus and some um, wonderful students and professors who you know, work in that lab. And they allowed us to collaborate with them and, and use um, some of their programs and their machines. And so all I needed to do was set up um, these coral skeletons that we had in the lab. And so we used a cropper of Formosa and Poslopera damacornis, damacornis, so two different types of um, sclerotinian. And so what does that mean? What, what kind of coral is that for our listeners out there? Yeah, so those are really, when you think of a coral reef and you picture, you know, like the branching, um, very complex structures of of different types of coral, that's really what what I'm talking about. So Acropora and Pothopora, both two um, very common genuses in both the Pacific and and Atlantic uh, regions. And basically, they form a lot of that structural complexity of, of a reef where they have very branching um, you know, species of coral. That's mostly mostly a crop or a possopper is as well, but that's a little bit more of like a sturdy kind of bushy coral, but they're not the big like, you know, boulder dome looking species. So we wanted to choose 
um, species of coral that would, you know, that we know are used by a lot of different types of small sample fish and other reef fish for protection. And so those branching spaces allow, allow for that. So yeah, so we had these two skeletons that we used and all I had to do was set them up in a well-lit area with, you know, just a neutral background and take 50 photos because that's the max that this program would allow. Oh, wow. And so I essentially just took photos all around it and above, um, maybe a couple from below as well. And so what you're doing essentially is you're putting all those 50 photos, giving them to that program, and they are able to use like reference points that they can match up between the photos to stitch it together into this 3D object. And so the end result is, yeah, just a 3D model of what your physical real object was. Very cool. Uh, now, 50 sounds like a lot of photos. When you started doing this, was, was 50 enough, do you think? <laughs> yeah, actually, it went just surprisingly well. Oh, great. <laughs> How easy it was to actually make the models. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. That was really my first time, you know, trying to do anything similar to this with 3D modeling, and it was unbelievably easy. And so I was really surprised to find that that program was no longer being used. I mean, I'm, I, again, I'm sure that there was something similar out there, but sure. um, yeah, it was, it was very easy. And then once you have that 3D model, you just, you can edit it, um, you know, you kind of clean it up, look for little holes and things like that. And the program really makes that very easy to do, um, cool. to just kind of get it ready for, for printing. And so you can then export those models to just essentially change their, the type of file that they are. Um, to be whatever called a slicing program that actually communicates with the 3D printer, whatever that slicing program needs to be able to, to print it out. Awesome. And you did this with a couple different materials, right? So it's not just you have real versus fake coral. Those fake corals are different types of material. That's correct. So I had um, four different 3D filament um, treatments essentially for the the artificial corals and then I do want to clarify that the the real coral that we used was just the skeleton of of a previously living coral so it wasn't a live coral that we were using and we did that on purpose actually um, because if we were providing you know for just 3d printed corals that obviously were not living and didn't have, you know, live polyps and other, you know, algae and things sure. that could give off certain chemical cues. We didn't want to use a live coral that would have all that and could influence, you know, the decisions that the, the fish were making. So, so we went with just a natural calcium carbonate skeleton and the same ones that we actually used to, to make the 3D models. But yeah, so I had four filaments and so I used, um, I tried to get like a wide range of, of the ones that we had available. So, cause they, there, I mean, there were a ton of different types of filaments that you could use. And I definitely, it wasn't exhaustive of all the ones out there, <laughs> but just for what we could kind of get our hands on at the moment, uh, we used two types of, um, like cold polyester plastic. So, um, they're essentially just, they're, they're known for being very sturdy, um, and, and for, um, uh, being non-biodegradable. So yeah, they're just, they're essentially just blends of different types of polyesters is what these, the two filaments were made of. And then 
I wanted a biodegradable one as well. So another type of filament was it's uh, like a PLA, PHA, like polylactic acid. And I'm forgetting at the moment what PHA stands for, but it's just describing the chemical properties of, of the filaments. And so those are actually uh, composed of cornstarch, which over time, you know, would allow them, allow them to break down. And then the fourth one that we used was also a biodegradable, um, largely biodegradable filament that was incorporated with stainless steel shavings. So that was a really interesting filament. It was actually really um, like uh, it, it would break very easily on the roll. And so it was, yeah, just the properties with that, that metal made it um, pretty fragile actually. But once it printed out and it was in like a more solid structure because 3D filament comes in these rolls where it just looks like this like tube of, of plastic, essentially this like solid tube that just wrapped up on this roll. And so in that state, it was actually pretty fragile. But then once it printed out <laughs> the coral itself, it was a dense, um, really dense material. So that was it was interesting to to feel the differences between the 3D filaments. And so when you're making those choices of those four of all the different ones, were you kind of specifically looking for that dichotomy of biodegradable and not, or is that just a happy coincidence? No, it, that was um that was intentional. Um, because I wanted to get a wide range of materials and properties and just trying to, because again, we didn't know just would it, is any 3D filament okay or none of them okay to use. Um, so I wanted to have a, have a wide range of, of materials in order to kind of assess that. Excellent. And so now we've got all the corals figured out and you set this up in a, a cafeteria style arrangement. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you describe visually what that looks like for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So I didn't coin that term. I'm not actually sure who did. Um, it's just something that we, you know, a type of setup that we use a lot in the Dixon Lab. And so, it's essentially if you think of a cafeteria, right? You have a lot of different options for what you could eat. And so it's essentially the same thing, where we had just a large circular tank where I had all five, the four 3D printed corals, and then the one um, calcium carbonate skeleton in the tank. And we would put a fish into the tank in a, um, like a, in a transparent tube in the middle where it actually would flow through as well. So they were, you know, in the environment, but couldn't access the corals right away. We wanted to, you know, acclimate them for, for a short period of time to get them used to due to the new environment. Um, and then we would slowly lift off that tube and we would allow that one single fish would go in at a time. We would allow it to explore the tank and essentially just choose whatever habitat they wanted to associate with, if any. And so how did you decide? Now, these are damselfish, a very specific species. They're the chromis, right? The little kind of bluish, greenish yes. ones. Um, those yeah, are, that's exactly right. And those are common in the pet stores, I believe, as well as being in, out yeah. in the ocean. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you quantify that behavior of a fish? How do you know that that fish was like, yeah, they're definitely digging that coral? How do you know that? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of subjective, right? Um, uh -huh. I mean, you kind of just have to go based on what has been established in the literature. So generally, it's just a specific... Um, and again, the range can, can vary a little bit, but if they are within a distance from the habitat, 
and are spending time near the habitat. That's generally because um, just because the you know a fish might be hovering above it, they might not necessarily be within the branches. That's still associating with that coral. So hang it. You know, so we chose a threshold of five centimeters away from the coral. So if it was, if it just kind of zoomed past it, then I was not, I did not consider that to be associated. But if it was within five centimeters and in a slow moving or stationary, you know, uh, position, then we considered that to be associating with that specific habitat. And so essentially what I did was I just, I sat there and I, and I watched, you have to watch from certain distance away so that you're not influencing Mm -hmm. um, their behavior uh, too much and just recorded how much time they spent with, with each coral. So that (laughs) sounds, you just do that over and over again. Yeah. I was going to say that sounds very time Mm -hmm. intensive for you, Mm -hmm. whoever's doing that. So how much time did this take to watch these fish and kind of get all these recordings down? Um, well, so printing the corals took the longest to figure that out. Actually doing the trials, um, I'm not remembering our exact, you know, numbers that we had, but I think we let each one, we did the cafeteria experiment. I think each one was in there for about half an hour total. And I think we had, I think six, 60 fish. I think 60 was in your Yeah, six, I think 60 was right. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm like I trying to bring it, it up so I can look at these little little details. But oh, of course, okay. my eight-year-old laptop is a little frozen at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so it took a couple of weeks, right, to get all that done. And then, you know, I barring other, other issues, you know, and just sharing lab spaces, you know how it goes. So yep. yeah, it, t- <laughs> it definitely takes a while. So that is um, the lab work all in all took yeah several several months to complete for sure especially between just getting figuring out how to get the corals printed getting that done um we had to we made sure to uh soak the corals just in in artificial seawater ahead of time to kind of leach any you know toxicity or anything that that could have been coming off of it initially um I know microplastics research has found that some of those plastics can leach some pretty nasty things. Right. Yeah. So we wanted to avoid those acute effects um, and just look at more uh, the long-term or, you know, more um, less, less acute effects essentially. Yep. So before we get to what you found, so we've got different kinds of coral. We're looking at damselfish to see what they like. Why are you doing this? What's the importance here? (laughs) Right. So the importance is really just to understand um, if we could, well, so I I think the importance is kind of twofold. And so for me, I was really excited to explore this, you know, area with using 3D printed models in research, um, because at least in, you know, the core reef community, it hasn't been used very widely. So just, A, can we create something that you could use to assess um, certain behaviors, like obviously using artificial 3D printed corals are not going to be appropriate for all behavior studies. It's just not going to happen, especially if you need live polyps or you want to know, you know, about how chemical cues are affecting, you know, their um, habitat associations or um, navigation or, or what have you. So it's not going to be appropriate at all in all 
cases. But I, I do think that there are um, certain studies where you could use 3D printed models to reduce the, you know, stress effects on, on the natural reef, right? You know, you're, you could reduce some of the manipulation of the reef and just overall it would be better I think to use something artificial that could be biodegradable um, you know rather than manipulating on the already very fragile reef and so so that was something that was exciting and then obviously if you know finding that these objects don't have any obvious like behavioral impacts on on these fish and on the coral and you know they will use them as habitat then we wanted to be able to take these models out into the field and assess them on a natural reef setting and just you know test out the similar things that we did in the lab you know out in the field and then yeah. So what you you did what you what did you actually find with your study here before we get into what you're going to do next? So the reason that you're doing mm-hmm. this is kind of you know can we even use fake stuff for any kind of behavioral yeah. things, right? And then also yeah. Yeah. You know, if if we can, then we could use this maybe in the natural environment. So if scientists are doing some kind of manipulation, it wouldn't be as harmful to wherever they're doing that manipulation at. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely one aspect. For did you? What did you find? Did, do, does it make a difference? Do they know <laughs> it's fake? Are they shying away from these weird plastic corals? Yeah, exactly. So what we found was that they were not. Um, so we didn't find any significant differences in the way that they interacted with the three D printed corals compared to the natural skeleton. And so the cafeteria style experiment was, you know, one uh, facet of this. And then we also did. Uh, individual behavior experiments where we had the chromis in one tank, a smaller tank with just one individual coral um, with all the different treatments. And so, you know, we wanted to see then actually like how on a, when they only had this option of using this habitat or not, would they use it? How far away were they traveling from it? Were they more active? Um, Because typically if a, if a fish is, more active um, in, you know, and not using the habitat. That that's not a great sign <laughs> that they felt comfortable and that they felt protected, you know, with with that habitat. But again, so in all of these experiments, we did not find, um, you know, differences between the natural coral and and these three D printed corals. And similarly, we did not find differences, you know, within just looking at the different types of three D printed objects. So it didn't appear that any of them had, you know, any sort of um, negative impacts or that they were attracted to any of the 3D printed materials. And so I kind of took that to mean, well, they all seem to be fine. (laughs) And so if that's the case, then we moved forward later, you know, with the field trials using um, only the the biodegradable filament. And so when you do the field trials, what was the purpose there? What were you doing? Yeah, so I, so it was essentially just kind of building off of everything that we did in the lab. And again, so that's um, some of the papers that are, that are coming out next. So I don't want to talk too much about oh. those. Um, okay, so under wraps. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. But it's just essentially building off of what we did in the lab. Very cool. So were you surprised at all that the fish didn't seem to really care that some of their stuff was fake? 
Um, yes, in the beginning, I, I was surprised that we weren't finding any significant results, you know, between any of the treatments. So I, I was a little surprised that they didn't have, um, you know, a preference, especially with, with the stainless steel one. I actually kind of expected them to not, you know, not like that, that option, just because it's such a, you know, it's a material that I'm sure that they've never been exposed to before. And um, the, the coral itself was, was very heavy and there's just different, you know, we tried to print them all in similar colors, like just like neutral colors so that that wouldn't have an effect. Um, but that treatment was also a bit grainier than the rest. Um, okay. So it's just, you know, kind of very minute, you know, differences. But I, w- I was surprised that they didn't have any preference at all. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of just comes down to structure, right? If they have um, a structure that, you know, they, they will use and feel comfortable in and feel like it's protective, then they'll use that as habitat. I mean, even just considering some of these, you know, the state of reefs today, you'll see fish, like reef fish using whatever they can, they can find in order to, to feel a little bit of protection, you know, like old cans and trash that's on the reef and things like that so this is, well so this is better when than I that, when then. I took a step back <laughs> right so when I took a step back though it, it did make sense that if you could design something to to mimic you know perfectly what their natural habitat looks like why wouldn't they they want to use that and another thing that you found I believe in this paper um not only do the fish not care what the thing is made out of um which as you already mentioned might change versus a, a true living coral versus just the dead kind of skeleton of the coral. For sure. Um, But Mm -hmm. regardless, we're going to pretend that that's not a big deal yet. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They did find that some of the uh, fake corals were important for the settlement of, was it other polyps or corals or how did that happen? Yes. Yes. So we did a totally separate experiment then looking at settlement of, mustard hill coral so this is a caribbean species it's um parietes astroides and so um this is um yeah we we just essentially wanted to know okay well we did all this work on with our chromis and found that the chromis have no you know can't really tell the difference and they don't seem to be deterred by these um by this material in these objects so if we you know why don't we look at how coral you know if coral would would utilize this material as well to settle on because really like, you know, having habitat for reef fish is important, but the coral is really the base of where that habitat comes from. Right. Right. So you got to get the coral on board as well in order for this to be something that could potentially be used, you know, actually as a restoration um, tool. And so we looked at, yeah, settlement of price astroides on settlement tiles. And so I'm, again, modeled this tile off of the bottom of a piece of terracotta. So terracotta tiles are um, traditionally used in, in settlement studies. Corals in general like to settle on spaces that have a lot of, uh, again, protection. And so protection for corals is much, you know, can be different for than protection for a reef fish because they're so much smaller when they first settle. And so they really just need these like cryptic little micro habitats, they're called, um, in order to, to settle and, and be more protected. So something that 
you know, has a lot of texture to it, essentially. And so terracotta has that. So I modeled these tiles off of a terracotta tile, used the same filaments that we did for to create the coral models. Um, and we conducted a settlement study. And again, yes, found um, not, uh, not a whole lot of differences between the materials. Again, so they, they did use them. They settled on the 3D printed surfaces and, and they were able to, to grow. And so what implications does that have for maybe reef health or trying to restore these reefs? Yeah, so the, the long-term idea with all this, right, is, okay, great. We found in the lab that, you know, fish don't have a preference, then they'll use 3D printed corals as habitat. Um, at least this one species of parietes, you know, also use these 3D printed objects as as a settlement site. So all this is great. And so long-term, our idea is, you know, first this has to be tested in the field, make sure under, you know, actual, you know, field conditions and on a natural reef um, that the same findings would, would apply. And if so, then it's possible that we could test out the use of 3D printed corals um, to be used as, like temporary habitat on degraded reefs. And so um, as I'm sure you and probably everyone out there knows that reefs are in a whole lot of trouble right now. And so between, you know, climate change and coral bleaching, um, ocean acidification, natural disasters, all the the storms, um, you know, reefs are, the live coral is dying and then the structure itself is also degrading from um, storms and in wave action. And so the complexity and just the biomass is decreasing in terms of live, live coral. It's increasing in a lot of other ways with algae and, and whatnot. But, um, so this, so this essentially is a possible ray use, of hope here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it's something to explore. Right. So I just I, I want to, you know, a couple people have I don't want to say criticized, but, you know, brought up, you know, do you really think it's a great idea to be putting more plastic out on the reef right now right. <laughs> when, you know, marine plastic is also such a huge issue? And I totally agree with that. And that was, you know, a concern of mine, too, when we started talking about doing this in the field and potentially, you know, scaling this up a bit. But, you know, like I said, I will say that for the field work, we did use the biodegradable plastics only. Um, and so while they're not just, you know, turning into sugar as soon as they get into the water, it is it is a biodegradable plastic over time, they would break down, especially in a coral reef environment, which is, you know, generally very hot and salty and um, has the fluctuating pHs. So just the environment itself, I think, would lead to, to a higher rate of degradation over time. But so that being said, the idea would be to secure, you know, these artificial corals to degraded parts of the reef so that they could provide this temporary um, habitat. And I say temporary because the idea is that over time they would either break down as the reef is able to start recovering, if it's able to start recovering, mm-hmm. or if coral are able to settle on it that they would almost just become incorporated into the reef over time as the live coral starts to grow 
um, and and take over, you know, the, the structure that it landed on. Very cool. All right. Well, um, that's that's actually all the questions that I had for you. Um, is there anything okay. else that you would want to let our fans know, or where we could read more of your <laughs> research if we wanted to? Yes. Um, so I am, well, I do want to give a shout out to Karen Roberts at the University of Delaware. So she was actually the one who wrote the original article on our um, campus U Daily site. And so Science Daily actually picked it up from her. So I oh, want to give a shout out to her for, yeah, for featuring our work because I've gotten a lot of awesome feedback from it. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened without her. Um, but yes, so we should, Dr. Dixon and I, should be having a couple more papers come out about the field work on this. We're submitting to um, coral reefs here soon. So hopefully that will, that will be out within the next couple of months or so. So and look Excellent. out for it there. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, there is also another student who in the Dixon lab, Alex Good, she is um, carrying on with this project. And so she should have some more coming up from that too within the next year or so as she wraps up her master. So yeah, it's, this project is definitely continuing and, and we're, we're excited to, to see where it goes for sure. And a big thank you to Doc Martin and Emily Rule for being part of this episode. Thanks for making the Fish Nerds nerdy. So that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big fat thank you to Wally Pleasant for our theme music, to Diane's Bath Salts for doing the music for our news. Thank you to the Crappie Hippie for the nice cooking segment. And big, again, thank you, Doc Martin and Emily Rule for making this show nerdy. So until next time. Follow the code of the fish nerd, spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get. Congratulations, you've got to listen to another fish nerds podcast. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the halibut. Fry it in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. Thank you.